from Israel, this is Open Line. Hello, friends. Welcome to Moody Radio's Bible Study Across America. My name is Michael Rydelnik. I am the professor of Jewish Studies and Bible at Moody Bible Institute and academic dean of the undergraduate school. I'm so glad to be sitting around the radio kitchen table with you right here in Israel. And we have a live audience right here. We are on an open line Moody Radio tour of Israel And the people on the tour are the ones who will be asking the questions today. So we've got a live audience, and you're listening to this. You're going to hear it. It's been pre-recorded. So today, if you have a question, write it to us, because you can't call in. Uh, What you could do is go to openlineradio.org, click on the link that says Ask Michael a Question, and you can put your question there, and then Trish will put it in the mailbag. But for today, what we're going to do is answer the questions of the people on the tour, the open line tour to Israel, and I'm pretty excited about that. They're all here, so we're going to get started right away with questions. This is Jay from Greenville, South Carolina. The current nation of Israel speaks Hebrew. Is it the same as biblical Hebrew? No. Uh, It is, if you look at uh, the letters, I didn't mention something, I'm going to mention it in a second, but if you look at the letters, if you look at the, uh, they look just like first century Hebrew letters, it is the same language. The difference is just like the difference between, I guess I would say, modern English and Shakespeare. Uh, so that it's much more archaic, but it is the same language, but it doesn't, you don't, you don't speak biblical Hebrew today. It's rooted in biblical Hebrew, but it's been modernized. Okay. Before we go to the next question, I, I, there I was, I was looking straight out. I forgot to mention my friend, uh, one of my favorite people in the world, uh, former president of Moody Bible Institute, and also now current advisor, is that the term? Advisor to the president. Joe Stoll is with us here in Israel teaching the Bible around the country with me. And you're joining me right now. Thank you, Joe, for being here. Happy to be here, Michael. Big time. Yeah. Now, this this is not your first trip to Israel, right? Not my first trip. No. I tried for years to get you to come, but would you come with me? No. But now... (laughs) Now, I'm just... I didn't think I was up to speed to go with a guy <laughs> like you, you know, so. So now, now yeah, it's now okay. It's okay. But okay. what a joy to be on this trip with you and with all these wonderful people. And yeah, good We're to be here. We have a great here. time. Yes, yeah. we have. Great. Okay. Okay, I have a two-part question. Okay. Um, it's about judges. So how many judges were there and... Who would have been the judge during the famine when Imelech and Naomi and the sons went to Moab in the book of Ruth? One, one and two. I'm, that's so easy. I'm going to have Joe. <laughs> 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 Michael, I just, just wouldn't rob you of the privilege. Oh, so. thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I would say my answer is several, yeah. probably. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say there were several judges. You know, that's, uh, Eva's grabbing her, te- her phone now. She's going to text me the answer, I'm sure. Uh, but the, the truth of it is, I don't know off the top of my head. That's, that's kind of, you're going to find this hard to believe. I try not to, I, I was really good at Bible trivia when I used to play it with my kids, but that's some, one of those facts that I have not stored away in my head. And I, I will say this, we really don't know 
who would have been the judge during the time of the famine with Elimelech. We just don't know. Uh, I wish we did, but there's, there, it just says, I love how the book opens, in the days that the judges judged. And so it gives us a pretty a few hundred year period of time, so we don't know. But think about it. Uh, when you look at the, I'm sure there's, there, I'm sure there's scholars out there that say, well, I know for sure when it was. But when you look at the beginning of Ruth, what I think is really interesting about it is that it says in the days when the judges judged, but then you go to the end of the book, and basically it has. Uh, I have a note from Eva: twelve judges. <laughs> <laughs> But we really don't know, right, Michael? She knows. Yeah, right. <laughs> you, you guys laugh. You think that I know these things. I tell you all the time, everyone listens on radio, that I get text messages with the answers. Yeah. And that's from Eva. But here's what I wanted to say is that it's got, uh, when it has the, the, this is a genealogy, and they have the son born... And his name is Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, the thing is, that sounds like it's three generations from uh, the kingship. However, it could mean the ancestor uh, or the grandfather or great-grandfather. So it doesn't necessarily mean that they are the same, just one, two, three generations like that. So there will, will be some people that will say that, but we can't know. Okay. Hi, this is Calvin from Lincolnwood, Illinois. My question is, what should David have done about Absalom and when? Oh, I love that question. Uh, I think that this is something that you would know about. But I, if you love the question, Michael, yeah, I just... Okay. <laughs> okay, I think that's a very practical question. Absalom uh, was troubled. He was... He was uh, undermining the king. And I think that the king should have dealt with him before, when, when he was, I'm sure they knew that he was at the gate and that he was undermining the king and that he was directing people away from David to him and winning the hearts of Israel. They knew, and there should have been a confrontation that was beneath the level of war. There should have been Absalom, see what you're doing, you're going to have to go elsewhere, something like that. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I do agree yeah. with that. Uh, I, I think that's one of the things I saw in a congregation once. Uh, a, a fellow came on staff, and he was an Absalom and was undermining the senior pastor. And the, the fear of a confrontation is what I think kept it from being dealt with. Mm -hmm. uh, and it got out of hand. And uh, it, was, it was sad because both the pastor and this other staff member lost their positions. So. Uh, my name's Carolyn from Shaker Heights, Ohio. Um, since polygamy was common in the Old Testament but not spoken of in the New Testament, when did it go away and was it due to direction from God or what? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, there's a book that I would recommend. Uh, called 50 Most Important Bible Questions. Hey, Michael, Michael, I'll, let me 
puff your book for you. Okay. okay? So, yeah. so actually, Marty and I have this great book, 50 Most Important Bible Questions, that Michael has written. And it is a fabulous book. And there is an answer to that in there, right? Yeah. Yeah. So Marty's read a lot of the answers to your yeah. questions. And I'd recommend anybody listening who needs to get online right now and get that book. Yeah. That could put you out of business, actually. Yeah, that would be every, good. Everybody would know all the answers, and you wouldn't have a radio broadcast. Yeah, then I have to write 50 more Bible questions. Uh, the, the next book's going to be 50 almost important Bible questions. But here's what I, I want to say. Genesis 2.24 is the creation of marriage. And when God created marriage, it was always intended to be between one man and one woman. Uh, it was never intended to be polygamy. Uh, and uh, so it says, a man shall leave his father and his mother and will cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the creation of marriage. Adam and Eve were put together, and then Moses, the author of the Pentateuch, breaks in, and he says, this is what's happening here. God intended marriage from the creation. And there are some passages in the, the, the Old Testament. People say, well, look, David had multiple wives, uh, obviously, Solomon went a little crazy. Yeah, right. right, exactly. But uh, it says in Deuteronomy 17 that a king should not multiply wives because that was the tendencies of ancient Near Eastern kings. So from the beginning, even in the Law of Moses, it's saying don't have multiple wives. Uh, one of the other things people say, well, the, you know, there's the priest, and he's got a wife named Hannah, he's got another wife. Why is that? Jacob, he had two wives. It never turns out good. The Bible is really clear that God always intended one man and one woman. And even when it doesn't speak directly to the issue of multiple spouses, uh, truth to tell, it never turns out well. And so I think it was never supposed to be. It is, it is recorded. There may be some things that are... Uh, because it was so common, the law of Moses included some things that would legislate difficult outcomes for it, but it was never God's intention. By the time you get to the New Testament, though, when the list of the qualifications of elders, a husband of one wife, so that was a standard for leadership, which means that that was God's right thing and mm -hmm. God's ideal. Yeah, yeah. So, and I think that's an interesting thing. I love that phrase, a husband of one wife, in 1 Timothy 3, because... I have the country western view of that. The, the, the Greek word is actually a one-woman man. Yeah, that's good. And, yeah. and that's the idea of obviously not multiple wives, as you said, yeah. and also even a man who has one wife but is, doesn't have a straying eye. Yeah, loyal. A loyal, loyal. man, a yeah. one-woman. I can just see that country western song coming out of 1 Timothy 3. <laughs> I'm a one-woman man. Oh, wow. That's, that's it. Yeah. But no, that's, the, that's what I think it has to be. Uh, it's more than just how many wives, but a man who has only one wife in his heart. That's, uh, I think that's the crucial aspect of it. We're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we have more questions from this terrific live audience right here in Israel. That was Joe Stoll talking with me. I'm Michael Rydelnik. You're listening to Open Line on Moody Radio. Stay with us. We're coming back with more questions straight ahead.
The Old Testament books of Psalms and Proverbs teach us biblical life lessons and principles that are too important to skip over. That's why we'd like to send you the commentaries on Psalms and Proverbs taken from the Moody Bible Commentary. Learn how the poetry and prophecy in these two books apply to our lives. You can request your copy today when you give a gift of any amount to OpenLine. Call 888-644-7122 or give online at openlineradio.org. From Israel, we're back at Open Line with Michael Rydelnik. So glad to have this live audience touring Israel, seeing the land from Dan to Beersheba. We're at the Dead Sea right now. Joining me throughout the tour and this hour on Open Line is uh, President, you're, are you still Mr. President? No, no. I'm Joe. Joe, Joe Stoll. Uh, my, my first 12 years at Moody, you guys, Joe Stoll was the president. And I just, it made it a joy every day when I would run into him or see him. He was the only president I've ever seen at any school that needed an hour to leave his office and get to his car because everyone would stop and talk to him. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. we were buddies. Those were good years, yeah. weren't they, Love Michael? Love yeah, yeah. I just it made it jo joyful for me every day. So anyway, I'm glad you're here with me in Israel. It's been so much fun. And Marty's here. Uh, the, the Marty, who we, today we, we went up to Masada, the, the, the fortress. And it's quite a, we took the cable car. And I heard today that Marty stole, it was the first time she took the cable car. She usually walks up. <gasps> wow. I am in awe. I am not worthy. Yeah. So. <laughs> Funny, she has me saying that all the time. I know, yeah, that's right. <laughs> as, as you should. There we go. <laughs> so, okay, let's go with some questions. Hi, Michael. Linda from St. Charles, Illinois. Hi. Yesterday, we visited Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. You mentioned that the scrolls were com the complete Old Testament, except for the Book of Esther. That's one of my favorite books, and I'm wondering, how did Esther become part of the Old Testament? I don't think it, uh, the fact that it wasn't there was that, I mean, they're all fragments. It just so happens that was the one that was missing. Uh, it's not that it wasn't considered part of the Old Testament, and it's one of my favorite books as well. Uh, but... The, I just think it, uh, the, if we keep looking, we're probably going to find it, yeah. is what I think. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's not that it wasn't there. It's just that you know, they, they just found fragment here, fragment there. And I have a friend uh, who is uh, at Liberty University, Randall Price, who is still doing excavations at Qumran. And uh, th so I wouldn't be surprised. Randy's going to call me one day and say, hey, we found it. But do you know what I think is cool about the Book of Esther? I think people could speculate because God isn't in the book of Esther. His name isn't mentioned. Although he is in the book of Esther, his name is just not mentioned. Exactly. Right? Yes. His fingerprints yes. are all over it. Yeah. Uh, and even they, they, the author is using a deliberate literary technique. That, like when it comes time for prayer and fasting, Esther says things in such a way, sort of backhanded, so that she doesn't say God's name. That's deliberate. Because the point of the book of Esther is that even when the people of Israel forget God, the God of Israel doesn't forget them. And that he is providentially working. Even when his name isn't mentioned, he's still permeating every passage. 
And I think that's how many lives are like about Absolutely. the providence of God. Yeah. And I, I think, too, it points out in Scripture that God honors women mm-hmm. uh, highly. I mean, you've got Ruth, you've got Rahab, mm-hmm. even, makes it into the line of Christ. You've got Esther, you have uh, Deborah, mm-hmm. the judge, and then the women who followed Christ. And so I've always felt good about that, that the Bible is not just all the men getting all the work done, but the women are there and doing great and are honored by God. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a great book, too. It'll, it'll be found. Give it time, okay? Hi, Tony from Davenport, Iowa. Hi, Tony. I might have a two-part question for you. Okay. Okay, and I did consult the Moody Commentary, but I'm still a little stuck. Okay. So... First uh, Peter three nineteen. He went and proclaimed oh, to the spirits no. in prison. <laughs> a pastor recently preached this um, that it means that Jesus went to hell and preached to the demons. Yeah. So, did Jesus go to hell? Well, <laughs> uh, th- that is one of the more common questions that we get. Uh, did Jesus go to hell? I. I want to say, I don't know what Joe Stoll thinks. <laughs> it, Michael, is, I, I just think always what you think. Oh, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I, I, what, what I want to say about that verse, I, we were just joking about this, that my pastor many years ago, uh, when he was preaching through First Peter, he gave me that paragraph. I was on the preaching team, and he was going through all that, and he said, I want you to do that paragraph in First Peter 3. I said... That one? And, and he said, yeah. I said, why don't you want to preach it? He said, do you see what it says? <laughs> so I got to preach it. Uh, but, and then I said, what view do you hold? He says, I don't know. That's why you're preaching it. <laughs> so here's, I think it's really clear when the Lord Jesus died, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit at the crucifixion. I think also he said to the thief on the cross, this day you'll be together with me in paradise, which is another word for the presence of God. Uh, It doesn't strike me that the Lord Jesus had to go to hell. I think the biggest idea that we get that he he descended to hell is from the Apostles' Mm -hmm. Creed. And the thing about it, it's not in the earliest Apostles' Creed, it's only in the later ones, which I think is really interesting. The very first editions we have of it doesn't have that phrase that he descended to hell. So uh, on the, now there, there are people who are wonderful Bible teachers who just agree to disagree about this. Uh, I have a friend uh, who actually was the acquisitions editor for the 50 Questions book, and he is convinced that the Lord Jesus went to hell to preach victory, uh, his, his, his proclaim his victory over the demonic world. I think that's what you heard. And he is still my friend, and he let me publish the book, so it's okay. Uh, Here's what I think it is, that he went and made a proclamation to the spirits Mm. who are now in prison. Mm. And what that means is that when Noah was preaching, it talks about that when Noah was preaching, he preached through Noah. That's the context here. Here? Here? Uh, he preached through Noah and those people who didn't listen to Noah were now in prison awaiting future judgment. 
And so uh, he did preach, but he preached through Noah, and he made proclamation to the spirits who are now in prison, who in the past were disobedient, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah. So God patiently waited in the days of Noah when Noah was preaching to them. They rejected Noah's message. Now they are spirits in prison. So when did he proclaim to them? When Noah was alive and he did it through Noah. Yeah, I think the NIV says imprisoned spirits, never says hell. Yeah. Right. So I have a question. Can I do a follow-up, Tony? Yeah. So what was the purpose of him preaching to the imprisoned, uh, imprisoned spirits? Well, he didn't preach the imprisoned spirits they were alive. They weren't imprisoned yet mm. when Noah preached to them. They were alive. It was to try and bring repentance to them. So it was... Okay. Yeah. So, the, yeah. so the idea is he preached through Noah right. to live people yeah. who rejected his message, and now they are imprisoned spirits. That's, that's, mm -hmm. that's what I think happened there. Now, I know a lot of people disagree. It's okay. Uh, and by the way... There's a really good article for those, there's a, uh, some people who might want a little bit higher academic level article, uh, and that's uh, by Wayne Grudem, and he wrote a, a commentary on First Peter, and he included that article from a journal in the back of his commentary on First Peter. Uh, and uh, he does a great job with this passage, explaining it in detail about how Noah preached to people who were alive, they died, now they are spirits in prison. And when Noah preached to them, he was actually, Messiah was preaching through them, through him. Okay. Thank you. You mm -hmm. answered part two as okay. well. Okay. <laughs> oh, part two. I got them both. There we go. Thank you. Hi. Yeah. Uh, I'm Ray from Spokane, Washington. Hi. Hi. I've got a question. I've uh, had it for quite a while, actually, about Beatitudes. Um, from the Beatitudes, and it, it's would you compare Matthew five sixteen with Matthew six one? Because at first glance, to me, some it, it, it all looks like it's contradictory. Matthew five sixteen, which says, uh, "Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs." And then, what's, what what do you want to compare that to? Six one. Yeah. Six one. Be careful not to practice your righteousness. In front of people, yeah. So, I'm not sure what the contradiction is. Well, I guess maybe I was. You don't have the ESV. That's the problem. Oh, I've got the right <laughs> translation here. Yeah. Oh, I can. There's no way I can read that. <laughs> Trish, why don't you read it? No, my eyes will not. No, Trish, Trish can read it. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> read the verse. All right, Matthew five sixteen says, "In the same way, let your light shine before others." so that they may oh, see your good works okay. and give glory to your Father uh, Now I see heaven. it. I'm sorry. Okay. I read the wrong verse. Oh. Okay. Okay. Now I get the question. Uh, Matthew 5, 16, let your uh, good works shine, right? Mm -hmm. Let your light shine before men, and then beware of practicing your righteousness before men. I think there are two different kinds of behaviors there. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, I think the, uh, the earlier in Matthew 5 is kalos, the Greek word for beneficial behavior, gifts, acts of love and kindness, uh, meeting the needs of others. And agathos, I think, if I, I don't have the Greek text in front of me, is uh, in verse 1, 6, which is righteous behavior, mm -hmm. being a righteous kind of a person. Mm -hmm. I'd have to check, though. I do know that kalos is the word in the yeah. first 
Yeah, I th and it, what it's talking about is, on the one hand, it's talking about uh, doing good for others mm -hmm. and doing it in, to reflect on the Father. Mm -hmm. And in Matthew 6, one, it's talking about practicing our spiritual disciplines in such a way mm -hmm. to try to bring honor to ourselves. And it's, it's the attitude with which we do those good things that makes the big difference. One is to serve others to bring glory to God. Another is to say, hey, everybody, look at me. I'm uh, giving. I'm fasting. I'm praying. Everyone notice me. Look how holy I am. Well, you have your reward in full. So, yeah. And I do think, interestingly enough, the first verse follows up after be talking about being persecuted for Christ's name's sake, and then says, let your light so shine by your good works, that the early church, their strongest testimony was their good works, because they lived in a very hostile environment. For instance, there was a Roman uh, law called death by exposure, where if your child was born and it was deformed, or maybe in that culture if it was a girl and you didn't want it, you just took it out to the garbage heaps and it would die by exposure. Early Christians would go out there and rescue these babies, harvest them, and raise them. And you could see, in the, you can imagine the testimony in the community. In the Black Plague, early Christians stayed in town and ministered to the people who were, had the plague while all their relatives fled to the mountains. I mean, there's so many wonderful stories. And that's that first kalos. Let your good works shine. That's the light of God. And it catches the attention of people. Yeah. Although if you go around and saying, you know, you ought to accept Christ because then you could tithe, that's not going anyplace. That's the righteousness one. Right? Yeah, that's the righteous one. That's right. Well, we're going to take a break here. Thanks for all these great questions. We're coming to you from Israel. That was Joe Stoll answering. This is Michael Arizona. And we're going to be right back with more of your questions right here on Open Line. From Israel, this is Open Line. I'm Michael Rydelnik, and we've got this wonderful live audience right here. And they have been touring Israel. It's the amazing thing is that they're up now after all the work we've put them through, going through the country, up and down. Joe Stoll is with me, and we are answering their live Bible questions. But I wanted to mention something first. One of my favorite things we did just a couple days ago is uh, friends are here on the tour, Vic, Vicky and Terry. And they said, can we take a picture of the kitchen table? And we all sat around a round table and we got out our Bibles and they took a picture of us pretending to study. Yes. <laughs> and then they posted it. You know, we all had our Bibles and we we're pointing. Uh, but the thing is, uh, Vicki, I don't know about Terry, but Vicki listens every week to Open Line. Terry, how about you? Do you? Absolutely. Huh? Yeah. He's nodding. Yeah. But, you know, the, the thing is, I so appreciate people who are regular listeners. When I started with Open Line, I thought the only person that would ever listen regularly is Eva, so that she could give me the answers. And, and then to, to meet people over and over who listen regularly, it's just, I, it's unbelievable. I can't, I'm so grateful to God. I just think it's, it's just wonderful, and I so appreciate it. You know, we talk about this being the Bible study across America, and there's regular listeners, and some people have become not just regular listeners, but they become kitchen table partners. And when I meet those folks, they just tell me, oh, we, we just, 
so pleased that we can give monthly to Open Line, and I appreciate it. Keeps us on the air every week. And what we, what I, Trisha and I try to produce, and Eva sometimes helps with it too on the air, is we do a Bible study moment every other week. Uh, it's a five, seven minute Bible study moment. It, you get it in your email. It's an audio Bible study produced exclusively for our kitchen table partners. Just a way of saying thanks for doing that and hoping that it'll give you a little bit more encouragement in the word. And if you'd like to become a kitchen table partner, if you'd consider that, I'd sure appreciate it. All you have to do is call 888-644-7122. That's 888-644-7122. Or just go to openlineradio.org and you can sign up to become a kitchen table partner there. Thanks so much. And we're going to go right back to questions now. Hey, Michael. Loving the tour, but this is unrelated. Okay, good. <laughs> How and where... Oh, by the way, I'm Steve from Indy. Yeah. How and where did the practice of tearing one's robes originate, and how was this accomplished? Uh, wouldn't it be difficult to tear fabric? Rending your garments. Rending your garments, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think that uh, garments are that hard to tear. You see it in the Old Testament uh, that you rend your garment to show mourning. Uh, I think that when you think about some of the Bible robes probably weren't made all that, you know, uh, they were handmade, basically homemade. Yeah. So uh, wouldn't you think that's it? Uh, it, it refers to just mourning. Uh, there's a verse in the prophets, rend your hearts and not your garments. Uh, where stop putting an outward show of repentance, have an internal repentance, right. and that's it. Uh, tell you about Judaism. I've done a lot of Jewish funerals in my life at the Jewish funeral homes. Uh, although I, when I do a funeral, it's a Messianic Jewish funeral. Yeah. Uh, but they always give you a little knife, uh, and they give you. You don't rend garments. You know you don't want to. Uh, $700 Armani suit torn. So what you do is you get together with the family and you put a ribbon, attach a ribbon to their clothing and you use the little knife, like a razor knife, and you cut that ribbon a little bit partially so it's torn a little bit. And and that's what you do. That's how you rend your garments today at a Jewish funeral. Uh, but what I think is funny is I just did a funeral uh, about a year ago and they gave pre- they, it's like a ribbon that's started, you know. You can uh, you just give it a little pull, and it pulls apart, and you rend the garment a little bit that way. But you still attach the ribbon. Yeah. So I just think that's funny because it just seems like, mm. hmm, really, that's not really rending your garments. However, when you go to an Orthodox Jewish funeral, they actually do rend their good clothes mm. uh, as part of a funeral. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Hello, Joe and Michael. Thank you. Both of you. Uh, Hi, Bud. <laughs> yes, I'm Bud from Clarion, Iowa, and uh, I always enjoy the Hebrew couplets, uh, the way the couplets take a look at one image, one thing, two different ways. Yeah, like synonymous parallelism. Right, yeah. right. And I was just wondering, uh, in Psalm 119, the stanzas are alphabetical, mm -hmm. and I know that that's a Hebrew custom as well. What was the purpose of, of that particular custom, and are there other Hebrew writings in the Bible or otherwise that follow that same pattern? <laughs> yes, uh, it's an acrostic. So the first stanza, every uh, paragraph starts 
with the letter Aleph. Every verse starts with the letter Aleph, which is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The second stanza, every verse starts with the letter Beit, and so forth all the way through the Hebrew alphabet. The purpose of that, I think, was a mnemonic device so that you could memorize your verses. Uh, one of the things that we often think about is that Psalm 1 talks about that we're to meditate on Scripture. And the idea of meditating on Scripture is sort of masticating it, bringing it up, you know, muttering aloud. Uh, so you had to know the verses. The, the word meditate actually means muttering. So, so the idea was they would memorize it uh, and mutter it. Uh, right now, I know there must be other... Yeah, well, there's a whole book of acrostic. Uh, Lamentations is an acrostic. Uh, and... Uh, uh, there's others, but uh, yeah, there, there, there are. It's a, it's a common Hebrew memory device. That's what okay. I would say about it. Uh, so, do we use memory devices? We just use them differently. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, like how many verses are in one nineteen, right? Yeah, I read that. I, I was reading through the Psalms, and I, what I was doing, I was going through the Book of Psalms while I was reading other things. I just wanted to read one or two psalms a day so I could, one of the things I like to do with the psalms is see the links. So often we treat every psalm as an independent book, but really one psalm relates to the next. There, there are words and thoughts that connect the psalms. So I was doing that. Then I came to Psalm 119 and I thought, I'm gonna do this two a day. Uh, uh, and I expanded that out over how many, 24? Yeah, uh, 176 verses. Yeah. You'd need a device yeah, you'd memorizing do. that. Yeah. But, you know, I think maybe we just should encourage our listeners to memorize God's Word yeah. and put it into their heads and their hearts. Uh, first of all, it's great for your brain exercise. But then God's Spirit has a way of bringing those verses back at just the right time, doesn't he, Michael? And so hiding God's Word in our heads... And our hearts both, I think, is a very important discipline for God's people. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's a great I wouldn't start with Psalm 119. No. Yeah, but... Because <laughs> they're a little redundant, you know. <laughs> what was that? But I, uh, there was a woman who was involved in Jewish ministry on Long Island then Los Angeles. And I met her when I first came to faith. And we stayed friends up, right up until her passing, I don't know, I guess about 10 years ago. Uh, and she was in her high top 80s, you know. And uh, I went to visit her, and she said, uh, she was living in Dallas, she said, well, we're working on Romans now. I said, what are you doing on Romans? And she said, memorizing it. Hmm. And I said, the whole book of Romans? She said, yeah, we're up to chapter 12, me and my neighbor. And, and she just started reciting Romans to me. And I thought, she said, well, you know, we've got to keep the brain going. And, but she said she had always memorized whole books of scripture since she was a young woman. And here she was in her upper 80s, and, and she was still doing that. And I think that is a, it's a good mental practice, right? But what a great spiritual practice. Yeah, very How, important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hi, Michael. Hi, Joe. I'm Patrick from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, my question is one that's bothered me for quite a while, and that is, can the verses about predestination in Romans 8, 28 through 30, and the verses in 2 Peter 3, 8 through 9, stating that God is not willing that any should perish, be reconciled, and if so, how? 
Well, mm. okay. Do you want to start Interesting. So the, the one in Peter actually is is about the second coming and the delay of the second coming. I think that yeah. kind of, you're looking yeah. at it right. Yeah. Uh, that God is not willing to. You know, they were saying, "Where is your Christ? He's promised to come." Well, He's not willing that any should perish. So that gives time. Actually, I think Michael, that could even include if you believe in predestination, that all the predestined people haven't been saved yet, and he's not willing that any should perish. I don't know. But then, of course, the other side of that question is, so what about predestination and free will, right? So yeah. here's Michael. <laughs> it, I, I think God doesn't wish that any would perish, uh, but there will be people who perish. But it doesn't mean that... It, when we think about God's will, it's not saying that his decretive, his decree is that none should perish. It is his desire that none should perish, not his decree. And that's really an important distinction to make. Uh, God doesn't want anyone to perish. He never created humanity for people to perish. It's his desire that none perish. But that doesn't mean that he's going to go beyond human beings' freedom and dignity and and force them uh, to believe. Now, as for predestination uh, and election, that whole thing, I, I think that I would never have believed, apart from God's uh, kindness to me, to open my ability to believe. Mm-hmm. It says in Acts 16 that, that, the, that God opened Lydia's heart to, to believe the message that Paul was preaching. That's, that's uh, what some theologians have called irresistible grace. I like calling it effective grace, <laughs> grace meaning enablement. Uh, I think God has predestined people. Uh, I only believe he predestines those for salvation. I don't think he... I th- here's what, how I think it works. Uh, I, I'm glad my, some of my theologian friends... Uh, more Bible teacher friends are with me that, than the theologian ones. Yeah. I don't know if this passes, passes muster, but I think that we predestine ourselves for hell because of our sinful behavior, mm-hmm. and everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, we've all sinned. But then God, out of his mercy, predestines some who will believe. He gives them the grace to believe. Uh, he's chosen us before the foundation of the world. Why he did that? Not anything in me. It's not because he knew in advance what I would do. Mm-hmm. It's just his pure grace. I don't understand it. Uh, there's, the Bible teaches two core principles, which is, one, God's sovereignty, and two, human responsibility. And people say they both can't be true. And I think, well, in my mind it can't be true, but in God's mind it you is. You know, I think we have to remember our minds are finite. Mm-hmm. So we think in this little box, God's mind is infinite. So, and the Bible doesn't, some places, make you think it's free will, right? In other places, mm-hmm. makes you think it is predestination. And those lines never quite meet in our finite minds. But if they're angular lines in God's mind, they do meet and make sense. We can't always think we can totally figure God out. Then we mm-hmm. would be God. And yeah. Marty would be really irritated about that, if we're in my case, anyway. Yeah. But, uh, so I heard some, I don't 
want to die on this hill, but yeah. someone said, you walk to the gate, it says, whosoever will may come. You walk through the gate and accept him, and then you look back on the other side of the gate, it says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So Yeah, I think yeah. it was allegedly Charles Spurgeon who said that. Oh, really? I'm not sure it really was. I'm not going to argue with yeah. him. Yeah, oh. no. But uh, I, I was just, I was thinking about this. I have a chapter about that in this book, and uh, I said to Eva the other day, because I was reading Narnia again, and uh, the kids ask Aslan, uh, Eustace and Jill Pohl ask Aslan, Aslan, bring us back to Narnia, bring us back to Narnia, and he brings them back to Narnia. And she's, she doesn't even know who he is, and he, she says, uh, well, we asked you to come to Narnia, and he said, you would not have asked if I had not called you. And that's, mm. that's really, mm -hmm. I wish I'd included that. We're going to take a break here. Thanks for that great question. Uh, hope that uh, people are seeing. I don't have all the answers. Joe, don't, we don't have all the answers, but we know we have a God who does, and he understands sovereignty and human responsibility. Absolutely. Isn't that cool? But we're going to be back with more of your questions in just a moment, so don't go away if you're listening. More questions from this live audience straight ahead. People are always asking me questions about the Jewish people. Some of you want to know how to reach your Jewish friends with the gospel, or you want to understand how the Messiah fulfilled prophecy. Others want to learn about the Jewish feasts and festivals. Chosen People Ministries is an organization that reaches Jewish people with the good news all around the world. Each month, Chosen People Ministries offers a free resource to open line listeners that can help you in your personal walk with Messiah Jesus, or it can help you reach out to your Jewish friends and neighbors. For your free copy of this month's resource, go to the OpenLine website, that's openlineradio.org, and scroll down and find the link that says, A Free Gift from Chosen People Ministries. Click on that link, and you'll be taken to a page where you can sign up for your own free copy of this month's resource. Welcome back. Here we are in Israel. We're by the Dead Sea. Hopefully everyone floated today in the Dead Sea. Did you guys float? Yes. Yeah, that's great. Uh, so much fun to float in the Dead Sea. We're heading to Jerusalem tomorrow. It's a great time here. This is a pre-recorded program, so you can't call. But uh, this live audience is asking the questions while we tour Israel. I'm here, Michael Rydelnik, and so is Joe Stoll. And we are, are taking these questions, and we're going to go right back to questions now. Hi, I'm Jackie from Indianapolis, Indiana. So we know the Messiah is from the line of David, but he was virgin born and Joseph was adopted him because she was a virgin. We know he's a line of David, but explain to me how the Messiah is the line of David. Ah, well, if you start with the genealogy in the gospel by Luke, okay? Uh, so often we think of that there's two genealogies. There's the one in Matthew and there's the one in Luke, and they're different. There's some names that are overlapped, like you'll see Zerubbabel in both, but that's because Zerubbabel was like uh, Tom, Dick, or Harry in, in America. You know, it's a common name, means seed of Babylon. So if you were born in Babylon, yeah, come on. Uh, but the, the point of it is that if you look at the, the genealogy in Luke, you'll see this is the genealogy of Mary. 
Uh, and the way I would point it out, if you look at verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 23, uh, he was thought to be the son of Joseph. And then it says, son of Eli. But most people take, because of the different genealogy, understand that to mean son-in-law of Eli. And then it goes right on through. And when you get to David, or actually, uh, here's where it goes. Son, as you're going backwards here, son of Nathan, son of David, son of Jesse. So Mary was a descendant of David, but through the line of Nathan, the son of David named Nathan. So he definitely was a physical descendant of David through Mary, through another son, not Solomon, but Nathan, the son of David. So that's one step. Secondly, Jewish law in the first century would say that if a man adopted a son, he is fully his son. Every right of sonship belongs to that son who is adopted. Joseph, when you look at the Matthew genealogy, that's the second step, Joseph is a descendant of Solomon. And so the, the result is he is by law a, a descendant of of Solomon, which had the right to kingship, because he is a descendant of uh, Nathan in the sense of adoption. And what I think is so cool about that, this is one of the great enigmas of Scripture. It talks about in Matthew that uh, after the exile to Babylon, this is uh, Matthew 1.12, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. If you go back to Jeremiah 22.33, Jeconiah, that king, was to be childless, and no descendant of his physical descendant was to sit on the throne of David. It set up a catch-22, because no physical descendant of his, according to Jeremiah 22:30, should be on the throne. However, a, a descendant of his had to be on the throne uh, because of uh, his being the line of kingship. Therefore, the virgin birth solve that problem. He, the Lord Jesus isn't a descendant of Jeconiah physically, but he is a descendant of David through Nathan. On the other hand, he is the legal heir to the throne through Joseph, who goes back that way. Okay? Time's up. Joe, sorry, you didn't answer that question. Well, I was getting ready to, but you did a great job. I'm <laughs> sorry. Actually, I may have been just a touch clueless on a couple of those details. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But that, that's the first hour of Open Line. We're going to come back with a second hour live from Israel. Uh, there's a second hour of most of your stations that you're listening to. So if your station doesn't carry it, check it out on the website. You can listen online on the Moody Radio app. Second hour of Open Line coming up straight ahead. So don't go away. Open Line with Dr. Michael Redonis is a production of Moody Radio, the ministry of Moody Bible Institute. Thanks for joining me, Joe. Happy to be here, Michael. <laughs>